From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. I think the solution, and it's one that uh, has bipartisan support, is something called housing first. We think about people who are homeless, many people think immediately about we need a shelter. But what's been shown time and again with experience and studies is that the if you take people just directly off the streets and with subsidies get them into permanent housing, uh, an apartment, we're not talking about a luxury condo here, that, that having that permanent housing, which you don't have in a shelter, you're profoundly unstable in a shelter in the sense that you're, the clock's always ticking. If you have that permanent housing, and then whatever services are needed are provided, whether, again, job counseling, mental health, uh, getting help and getting IDs, benefits, that the success rate is much higher. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. What do you do when you're ordered to stay at home and you have no home? How do people experiencing homelessness, many of whom suffer from poor health, deal with the threat of COVID-19? What measures are local governments taking to address these challenges? Stephen Schnabley, who was at the center of Pottinger versus City of Miami, a federal court case protecting the rights of the homeless, looks at these issues through the lens of the pandemic. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Well, we're seeing in the news um, that Miami is doing uh, some things that are are not helping the homeless. Uh, just yesterday, clearing out some some homeless camps, but Miami has a history of not treating the homeless with with dignity and respect, which is what the Pottinger decision uh, was all about. Can can you talk a little about that case and what it accomplished? Certainly, the Pottinger case, Pottinger v. City of Miami, is a federal court case that has a long history. It's still current. It's on appeal before the Eleventh Circuit. It's a case about challenging what we call criminalization of homelessness. Now, that term criminalization means essentially repeatedly arresting people who are homeless for fairly minor and relatively uh, uh, harmless misdemeanors like obstructing the sidewalk, sleeping in public, um, being in the park after hours. And what happens is people who are homeless essentially have no choice but to live in public, and they can hardly avoid uh, committing these misdemeanors. So that when you repeatedly arrest them for things like obstructing the sidewalk, what the courts have held and what was held in Pottinger, which was a a path-breaking case on the Eighth Amendment, is that 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 practice of criminalization amounts to punishing people for being homeless. Now, another aspect of that also, which is not uncommon, sadly, uh, in many cities across the country today still is is destroying people's belongings. There are so-called cleanups of homeless encampments, and it's, it can mean that city officials come in and with very little warning say, we're going to clean up all this mess. And what gets tossed in the garbage bin is the belongings that people need to survive. That can include ID, which you need for so many things, including any chance of getting a job. It can include medicine personal photos, clothes, shoes, and the like. So this is a practice that in the Pottinger case 
which goes all the way back to 1988 and some very bad things the city of Miami was doing at the time. For instance, uh, any major public event, they would clear the streets out, which could even mean gathering everybody's belongings in a heap in a park and setting them on fire and then, again, repeatedly arresting people. So the case, as I say, goes back to 1988 and 1992, the federal district court held that these practices of criminalization violate the Eighth Amendment. That's a, a, a holding that's been uh, affirmed by courts in other parts of the country as well, including most recently in the Ninth Circuit in the last year or two. Now, what then happened was the city of Miami appealed. We entered a long period of about two years of negotiation with them in the late 90s and in 1998 uh, agreed to what's called a consent decree. A consent decree is a binding uh, judgment of this, the court. It has binding federal force. It's a, it's legally binding on the city. And it laid out some very specific requirements and, and uh, restrictions on the city of Miami in dealing with people who are homeless. The principal restrictions uh, in that consent decree are that the city of Miami cannot arrest someone for one of these what we call life-sustaining conduct misdemeanors which means things like obstructing the sidewalk, being in the park after hours, unless they are offered a space in the shelter, it's gotta be an available space in a homeless shelter, and they refuse. The theory there being that, well, if they are offered a space in the shelter and they refuse it, then they're not involuntarily homeless. But otherwise, these are people who are being forced to live in public and shouldn't be repeat, uh, arrested repeatedly. It also puts some restrictions uh, on the city in terms of protecting property. So this consent decree has been in effect for about 20 years. Now, there have been some back and forth in between the city and the plaintiffs. It was a, a class action uh, representing all people who are homeless in the city of Miami. But in uh, 2018, the city asked for it to be terminated. What they said was, we've reformed our practices. We've incorporated the terms of the consent decree in into our police uh, regulations and other city regulations. So please, federal court, lift the consent decree and we'll just manage things on our own. Now, our position at the time was based on uh, what the city was doing, even in early 2018, was that they were systematically violating the consent decree. So before the federal district court in uh, 2018 were these competing motions to enforce the consent decree and to terminate it, and unfortunately, from our perspective, the court decided to terminate it. That's on appeal now. But the restrictions substantively on arrest and criminalization do remain in force as city regulations. Um, so that's a brief history of a very long running case. Yes. Um, so as we saw this week, um, you know, the police clearing uh, one of the encampments. Um, how do how does COVID nineteen and and other disasters kind of present these unique challenges? Well, two things. What are the challenges for people experiencing homelessness, and of course, then what are the challenges in relation to ensuring that constitutional rights are protected? On the first point, I would say that people who are homeless often have you know, medical conditions that are serious and, and it's very difficult for them to get treatment. And so their health condition overall may not be good. Secondly, if you especially are living on the streets, it's hard to follow a lot of the advice that we're given. You certainly can't stay at home. You have no home. But washing your hands, well, 
where are the bathrooms? Where are the hand washing stations? Uh, in, in many cases, there are very few actual public bathrooms, meaning uh, government buildings where people have a right to go in, as opposed to maybe a fast food place where if you buy a, a drink, then maybe you can also use the bathroom. With the closing of many restaurants and stores, even bathrooms uh, are no longer available. So it's hard to maintain that uh, sanitary condition. Also, when you're living on the streets, uh, often people like to be together because it, it's safer that way and you can help each other. But uh, that poses issues about social distancing. So there's that whole set of challenges. Now, I will say you are also homeless, even if you're living in a homeless shelter under the federal definition. It's not permanent housing. And those pose different challenges, too, because they're congregate settings. We see that a lot about nursing homes, for instance. But there have been instances in shelters, uh, mostly I've read about other cities of of, uh, for example, one in, in San Francisco, where there was a where they went in just a matter of days from very few people testing positive to half or more of the people testing positive. It's a difficult environment. So there are all those challenges that people face. So the constitutional rights challenge is one that really shouldn't exist. But unfortunately, I think the impulse to criminalize to kind of other homeless people is very strong. And so what you have is, in many cities, a desire to break up visible homeless encampments, gatherings of people uh, where they're trying basically just to, to live and, and stay as safe as they can. Uh, and the problem with that is, first of all, it's terribly traumatic. Often the property is destroyed. They're dispersed. They're, they're whatever support system they can have among themselves is destroyed. And if there has been contagion, you're dispersing people throughout the city and potentially endangering everyone else. But that has, that's one impulse to just get rid of the visible face of street homelessness. Now, um, what the CDC calls for, and they've specifically addressed the question of how do we deal with homelessness in this COVID-19 era? Uh, two points. One is that it's very important for homeless shelters to maintain uh very good practices about cleanliness and to figure out ways to enforce social distance. And that's not easy because, first of all, there are different kinds of shelters. Some may be more um, uh, an open uh, you know, sort of auditorium style, but many of them might have uh, rooms, but they might be shared rooms. The, the, the uh, dining is common. And so it's a challenge, but there are measures that they can take. But where that's not possible to fully protect people in shelters, the CDC recommends that the population be reduced and people be taken out of shelters. Well, where do they go? Hotel, mo hotel or motel rooms? That's the answer. In virtually every city, there are many, many hotel and motel rooms that are empty. It is quite possible for uh, the agencies in charge with uh, uh, dealing with people experiencing homelessness to negotiate good rates. And there is actually emergency aid from the federal government to cover this. Now, what the CDC says about people who are experiencing homelessness on the streets is, again, move them also into hotel or motel rooms on the same basis. In all of these cases, still providing services. If you are in a homeless shelter, you're not just staying there. There should be services provided in terms of helping you get benefits that you may be entitled to, 
uh, medical assistance, job counseling. Uh, there may be, and there are people who have mental health challenges, or they may have, and it's a much more specialized matter, but may have substance abuse challenges. But the idea is to get people off the streets, but not by simply doing something cosmetic, like breaking up an encampment. And the actions of the city yesterday, I think, show though that impulse to kind of go somewhere where there's a lot of people, in this case, under an underpass, understandably, and, and uh, seemingly just decide we don't want to see you anymore and break it up. That's not good. You know, you also see in Miami Beach, for example, they are planning, according to their commission meeting, to pass an ordinance that specifically targets people experiencing homelessness and makes them subject to arrest for uh, panhandling. And uh, the theory is that, well, if you're waiting at a restaurant or takeout and someone approaches you and they don't have a mask, it's a danger. Well, all that's true. But what you see in the city of Miami Beach is they're not out there arresting people who aren't homeless for failing to follow social distancing and failing to follow masks. A neutral, actually generally applied rule about social distancing surely could be uh, enforced against uh, anyone, uh, but not one as they're planning to do that is written into the law. This applies to people who are homeless, who are panhandling. I would also say, and it's a whole other topic itself, but the Supreme Court has consistently said these anti-panhandling anti laws violate the First Amendment. And when you get into the, the situation of, oh, it's an emergency, let's suspend the First Amendment, that's worrisome for everyone. So again, the real solution to this problem is not to have people out on the streets uh, trying as best they can to make do to live, to just function, but to get them into these hotel and motel rooms, which are empty, it benefits actually everyone, even the hotel and motel operators, it benefits the public, and of course, it benefits this very vulnerable population. Sure. Are there any cities uh, that are, are doing it right? Um, because this is very different than a hurricane or a wildfire or something where you want to put people in, in shelters and you're not so much worried. This is like a whole new... Thing with the social distancing and, and uh, not exposing people to a very fast-moving virus. So is anyone doing it right? Uh, well, I, I don't know that there are any cities that are uh, shining examples of getting it all right from the get-go, especially when you look at the major cities. Um, I can't rule out that there's some smaller city that, you know, where that hasn't gotten so much publicity where they, they did the right thing from the outset, which was to say, we've got all these rooms and hotels and motels empty. Let's move people off the streets. Let's thin out the shelter population. I would say in, in most places, there's been a recognition, some earlier than others, that that's the only real solution. In general, there's been movement in that direction. And I will say the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust, which is the agency here in Miami charged with that, has certainly said, yes, we're committed to doing that. They've secured hotel and motel rooms. But, you know, there's still a lot of people living on the streets. It's taking a very long time, and it's not clear why it should take as long as it has. I think that's probably true in, in other cities as well. Now, Miami has a much... Is fortunately, smaller population of homeless individuals 
probably about 3,500 in all of Miami-Dade County, of whom about 1,000 are living on the streets, whereas you're talking about 60,000 in New York City, 60,000 maybe in Los Angeles County. So it seems uh, much more doable. Uh, I do think one of the reasons why Miami's population may be smaller than it might otherwise have been is that the ruling uh, in Pottinger and the consent decree did make it harder for the city to resort to criminalization. And that's really the, the theory here behind the case, that you rule out the really bad one, the really bad policy option that is also unconstitutional, and it forces the local authorities to try to uh, come up with other policies. And if one goes back to the lawsuit, one of the responses of the city, which wasn't mandated by the court, but it was the city and the county working together very constructively, was to create the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust, which is an agency charged with uh, dealing with the problem of homelessness, and then also to put before the voters uh, a measure to have a 1% meals tax so that there would be secure funding year in and year out. Now, of course, that's been a problem with the COVID crisis. People aren't going to restaurants so much. The funding has been reduced, but over the years, it's been a source of steady funding, and it's allowed a great expansion in the shelter space in uh, Miami-Dade County. Good. Um, so are you seeing, well, I'm thinking because of the amount of, of unemployment, you know, those numbers rocketing, that those people that were right on the edge, we're, we're going to see an increase in, in homelessness throughout the, the country as those people just slide, you know, further into the abyss. Um, are there any long-term solutions coming out of this or, or, or thinking differently about how we, we view the homeless and, and, and we view their path out of homelessness? Well, yes, I think there are some long-term and medium-term uh, approaches. The, the, the use of hotel and motel rooms is what I would call certainly the very short-term approach. But let me say, I think you're right. There is going to be an increase in homelessness. And it's an important point to make. People in general do not become homeless by choice. It's not that there are these free spirits out there who love to live on the streets over calcitrant people. The, the stereotype that everyone who is homeless has some mental illness and would be housed if they just could either get some help or get their act together, that's wrong. The, the underlying problem here longest term is the lack of affordable housing. Affordable housing is a, that, that is, it's a combination of how expensive is the housing and what are the wages available. And of course, the city of Miami has very expensive housing and relatively low wages. And that means you have many people living on the edge. And then whenever you have any kind of economic downturn, we saw it in, in 2007, 2008, the number of people who are homeless increases. The number of shelter spaces doesn't increase automatically. And so you can also get more people living just out on the streets. It becomes more visible. But of course, even if the number of shelter spaces could somehow magically increase, it wouldn't mean that they weren't homeless. A shelter will take you in for a few months, but it's not permanent housing. So what are the solutions? The longest term solution is for all cities, including Miami, to emphasize and require uh, the creation of affordable housing. Now, how can that be done? 
Part of that can be done, I think, on a city by city basis. We have many expensive uh, luxury condos often built as much for foreign investors as for anybody else. They may go empty. A tax on those or a requirement when those plans are approved that there be serious construction of affordable housing would make a huge difference. But I think the federal government has a role to play here. And this is kind of a lesson that I don't think homelessness has been with us forever, not in the form that it is. The current uh, problem we've had now for decades goes back to the mid to late 80s, early 90s, when the federal government drastically cut back on housing assistance. And uh, both in terms of public housing, just uh, basically turning away from that option and turning more towards rental subsidies, but with inadequate amounts targeted for that. That's called Section 8 housing. You can't even get on the waiting list today for Section 8 housing, let alone if you are. It's years and years and years before something opens up. So that's the key thing. Now, in the median term, though, I think the solution and it's one that uh, has bipartisan support, is something called housing first. We think about people who are homeless, many people think immediately about we need a shelter. But what's been shown time and again with experience and studies is that the if you take people just directly off the streets and with subsidies get them into permanent housing, uh, an apartment, we're not talking about a luxury condo here, that, that having that permanent housing, which you don't have in a shelter, you're profoundly unstable in a shelter in the sense that you're, the clock's always ticking. If you have that permanent housing and then whatever services are needed are provided, whether again, job counseling, mental health, uh, getting help and getting IDs, benefits, that the success rate is much higher. It is, first of all, way, way cheaper than arresting people and especially jailing them. And of course, in these times, jailing people is even worse because of COVID. But uh, that it's cheaper than shelters and cheaper um, than way cheaper than arrest to take this housing first approach. It's a, an approach that was first touted in the uh, George W. Bush administration. The Obama administration took it up. The Trump administration for the first couple of years followed it. They now are have appointed someone who's very hostile to it. I think that's a big policy mistake. Uh, but that, I think, is the kind of medium-term solution. It is a solvable problem. I don't doubt that in uh, Miami-Dade County, we could have not just people off the streets, but out of the shelters with enough funding for Housing First. I do think that's the problem. It needs, it, it, it possibly could be better executed, but I think the main problem is more funding is needed. It would solve the problem that is one that is you know, appears too easily as a vexing permanent problem and one that always tempts local decision makers and government officials to uh, use this kind of what I might call cruelly cosmetic approach of criminalization, of just making people disappear from sight while not solving the problem. Right. Well, this has been very interesting, and I thank you for your time. Well, glad to be here, and uh, I, I'm, I hope you stay safe and healthy in these uh, very difficult times, and I'm looking forward to seeing you and everyone back in classes and uh, when we resume in the fall. Exactly. Stay healthy, my friend. Yeah, easy. Bye.
Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugedz. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Miami School of Law's magazine, showcasing achievements of students, faculty, and alumni worldwide. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu forward slash IML forward slash Miami dash law dash magazine.